Good morning. My name's Ryan Laughlin. I'm the senior pastor here. Our passage this morning is Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. And um, you can find this passage in the Bibles in your pews on page 974. This is Galatians 5, verses 1 to 15. Let's give our attention to God's word. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts might be pleasing to you. That as we read your word, that our hearts would remember and enjoy once again the freedom that we have in Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you will probably remember the great rescue that took place in 2010 in Chile. 33 men who were trapped in a mine after the mine they were working in, part of it collapsed. This played out on the internet and on cable news 24-7 for three months. For three months, those men lived in that cave and survived. And then they were eventually rescued and they were welcomed as celebrities. They had countless interviews. Maybe you know about that story because I think there's a movie made about, if not more than one movie made about that incredible dramatic moment when they were pulled out and, and they were given a lifetime pension by the government. They were, um, they were uh, claimed as, as sons of the country who had been rescued. I read an article a few years ago that followed up with those 33 men about 10 years later. 
Now, this wasn't true of all of them, but for many of them, they were actually in a pretty bad place. Some of them um, wanted to work but couldn't because uh, they were so traumatized by what happened. Some had turned to drugs and to alcohol. They were addicted. Some were depressed. Many of them had problems with their family because their family and friends were jealous of all the attention that they were receiving because of what happened. Many of them were deeply unhappy. And one of them said something in, in this interview, this article that I read. He said, um, we were welcomed as heroes, but now we feel like orphans. That sums up pretty well the situation that the Apostle Paul is addressing in Galatia. Uh, if you've been with us for the last couple months, you've heard this every week, but I will just repeat it again for those of you who just need a quick refresher. The Apostle Paul is writing this letter to a church, a church he started, and after he left that church, a group of false teachers have come in. He calls them the Judaizers because these are teachers who are claiming that in order to be Christians, you have to first become at least in some ways Jewish. And you see it in this passage because it's repeated several times. The main practice that they are pushing on to these new converts is the practice of circumcision, the long-standing tradition uh, within God's covenant people to bear the covenant sign. And Paul, in response to this teaching, keeps reminding them that once you add anything to the gospel, the good news that Jesus has rescued us once and for all, once you add to it, you no longer have a better gospel or any gospel at all. Now you have given yourself over to a life with, with God that is based on your performance. And so he's been saying this for chapters now, one phrase, one metaphor, one image after another to convince them to remember the freedom that they have in Jesus. And now in chapter five, he just says to them, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Freedom. That's a concept we can get behind, right? Freedom. And yet, uh, even as we were singing that great hymn at the beginning of the service, it occurred to me, well, the third stanza or so in there, where it talks about my chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Yeah, there's part of us as Christians who resonate so deeply with that because that's our story. But also there's part of us as Christians who wonder sometimes why our experience doesn't look like that. Like maybe there was a time when the rescue of Jesus felt like we had all of a sudden been liberated. But now, now we're just, we're all tied up in knots. You know, our anxiety cripples us. Our, our, uh, our, 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 our sin often feels like it's controlling us. We're not controlling it. We feel trapped. We, we don't feel free, if we're honest. And, uh, and, and what Paul recognizes in the Galatians, and I think what he recognizes in what is the, the common experience of the Christian, is that it's not impossible for us over time to begin to lose our sense of freedom. And it's his purpose in this passage to restore the hope 
that Christ really has set us free, that we would not only know that, but that we would experience it in our daily lives. So Paul's going to go about doing that by telling us two things about freedom in Christ. First of all, what Christ has set us free from and what Christ has set us free for. What he set us free from, what he set us free for. Um, Now, that first point, initially I was thinking, well, this will be simple. I'll be able to dive right into this passage, what Christ has set us free from, because Paul says... Uh, Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So we could spend all of our time talking about what is that yoke of slavery, and we're going to here in just a hot minute. But it also occurs to me, wow, that is a huge topic. What has Christ set you free from? Wow, okay. Uh, Christ has set you free from the kingdom of darkness. He has set you free from the slavery of the evil one. He has set you free from the judgment you deserve because of your sinful rebellion against a holy God. He has set you free from an eternity separated from God in hell. He has set you free from all of that. We're not going to talk about all that. Uh, if, you, if you don't know what any of that means, then, then, then we need to talk. But it's also true that Paul is, is, is laser-focused here because he's dealing with a group of people who may believe all of that but are also submitting to a different kind of slavery, what he calls here a yoke of slavery. Do you see that in verse 1? Uh, a yoke, uh, if you're not uh, familiar with a yoke, a yoke is this wooden crossbeam or wooden bar that you place on top of working animals like oxen. So you put the wooden bar across their necks, across their backs, and then you tie it to a plow or to a cart, and it bears the weight. It's a burden. It helps them do their work, and he's using that analogy here. It's a common biblical analogy in both the Old and the New Testament to describe slavery, bondage. Um, In the Old Testament, it talks about a yoke of oppression, this idea of a weight, a tyranny, a burden that's set upon you. And what's in view here, interestingly enough, is living under the tyranny of the law. Now, I say interestingly enough because Paul has already said there's nothing wrong with the law. He established this back in chapter 3. He said the law is not the problem. You're the problem. And so if you make your life with God reliant upon your performance of the law, it's only going to wear you out and crush you. It's a burden you and I can't live under. Paul explains this a little more because I feel like he's anticipating like a response from the Galatians and the Judaizers. And the response goes something like this. Paul, all we're talking about is circumcision. Come on. Like you're making this big deal out of the tyranny of the law. All we're talking about is adding circumcision. And circumcision has been practiced by God's people for thousands of years. So we're just... We're just saying it would be good for those who are not circumcised to be circumcised, you know, in order to be in obedience to God's law. So why are you making such a big deal of it? So Paul says, no, you don't understand. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you this again. Verse three, he says, I testify again. Like we've talked about this before. He's saying to them, to every man who accepts circumcision, that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You know, you can't cherry pick God's law. You can't say, well, these are the bits I like, 
And they happen to be ones, I'm like, I'm pretty good at these. So you can't cherry pick God's law and decide, well, these are the ones that, you know, I can feel some level of pride that I keep as if, as if you were keeping the whole or as if God is just really impressed that you're keeping this little part of his law. No, what he says is, no, if you're signing up for salvation by works, it's the whole enchilada. Like, it's the whole thing. You got to keep all of it. Uh, it reminds me of this uh, advertisement that was put up in the New York subways a couple years ago by the running shoe company Asics. So it was this video wall. I didn't measure the platform, but let's just say, you know, this is what, maybe 30 feet, 40 feet long. So 60 feet long, maybe the width of the room, okay? Video wall in the New York subway. And every so often, every, you know, two minutes or so, the image of a marathoner would run across, okay? And this was actually um, a simulation of an actual marathoner, a guy named Ryan Hall, running at the pace he runs, okay? Which, you know, which ain't like your 8.55 a mile pace, all right? It's like, un, like sub fives for 26.2 miles, okay? So, he's, so he runs, and, and the idea was that, that people walking by would try to keep up with him. And so they have videos of people on their, on their commute putting their briefcase down, like, hold this, I got this, you know. And they would run maybe 10 feet, and Ryan Hall's image would be, like, way past them after 10 feet. And then some people would make it, like, 25 feet. Some people would make it 60 feet, and they'd be, like, high-fiving their friends and all this stuff. But see, that's, that's not quite the whole story. Like, you might be able to keep up for 60 feet. He runs 26 miles at that pace. Okay. What Paul is saying is, okay, you can maybe in little bursts of zeal, like keep up with the law, you know, for three hours. Maybe six hours if you're on a really good day. But we're talking about 100% obedience 100% of the time. And if, if that is your life, like if you are constantly in fear that you are condemned, that you are living under the judgment of God. That is a burden that has been lifted off of you by Jesus. How? Because he has run that race, just to use Paul's analogy in verse 7. Jesus has run that race perfectly. He has obeyed the God's law for you perfectly. Back in chapter 4, verse 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born what? Born under the law born under the law so that we might be redeemed out from underneath it. And so Paul's point is simply to say, Christ has set you free from that yoke of slavery. Don't go looking for it again. And notice, he, he's not just frustrated with the Galatians. He's really frustrated with the Judaizers who have convinced the Galatians that this is a good idea. He says to them in verse 7, he says about them, they cut in on you on this race. He says about them in verse 10, they will bear the penalty, whatever that penalty might be. He even goes so far in verse 12 as to say, you know, circumcision isn't enough. They just need to go all the way, which I don't know how Paul gets away with that, but Paul gets to say things like that apparently. And the reason he says things like that is because he is deeply concerned that they not lose their freedom in Christ. 
that they not become hypocrites because you can see how sneaky legalism is, can't you? Like once you begin to take a little bit of pride in your performance before God, it's just not much further for you to begin to say, and maybe I'm just a little bit better than everybody else. Or maybe like I've really, I've really nailed it with this one part of the law as if, as if you haven't broken the law in a thousand other places. And Paul is saying, you know, uh, brothers and sisters, you've been freed from having to pretend like you have your life together because you don't. Or, you know, presenting yourself as a law keeper when you know that you're not. Or as if you're more righteous than everyone else. Because your only righteousness, as Paul says here, is the hope of righteousness which will be revealed one day when we see Jesus face to face. So knock it off, he says. Don't submit again to a yoke of right because Christ has set us free from the yoke of slavery. But but, um, Paul also says, Christ has also set you free for something. I feel like we've covered that first point a decent amount, but it's worth going over again. This is where Paul is, is doing something slightly different in the letter. He's turning not just from what Christ has set us free from. He says, now, he's actually set you free for something. And the word I want you to notice first is in verse 1. It's that, worst, that, that word again. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Why, does that, why is that interesting? Well, the Galatians were converted out of basically a, a pagan lifestyle, many of them. So think of this as like, these were people who... Um, you know, their mantra was like no rules, no laws, certainly not Ten Commandments kind of stuff. So they may have had their own version of morality, but they weren't, um, they weren't living what we would understand as sort of a good, moral, righteous, religious life. Like that was just not their thing uh, because they were ignorant that that was something they needed to do. And yet, um, in our own culture, I think many people would say that's basically freedom. Like if our culture were to define freedom, how would you define it? Well, uh, no one telling you what to do, doing whatever you please, uh, you know, no rules, uh, no breaks, all gas, right? Just go. Follow your heart, follow your desires, all that stuff. So our culture calls that freedom. Paul calls that slavery. You notice he's saying, don't trade one form of slavery, which is legalism, or which is uh, living any way you please, for another form of slavery, which is legalism. Which is really interesting because I think many of us understand this from the inside out. We, we've experienced what it's like to get everything we want in a career, in life, in relationships, by following our hearts and realizing, you know, this isn't so freeing after all. You know, I, I actually feel more trapped, more in bondage now because of my choices than I did before. Paul is saying Christ has set us free for something. What does he say Christ has set us free for? Verse 13, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. First thing Christ has set us free for, and this I know this sounds counterintuitive, but is self-control. Um, the word there could also be do not indulge. Do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. The flesh there isn't talking about our skin and bones. It's talking about the desires in our hearts that want exactly the opposite of what God wants. 
We'll talk about this again next week when we talk about the spirit and how these two things conflict with each other inside of us. But the word I really want you to see here is the word opportunity. See, Paul has spent all this time establishing that we are free from the law, that there's nothing you can do that can make God love you any more. There's nothing you can do to make God love you any less, that you have the righteousness of Christ, that your sins are forgiven past, present, and future, that you are really free. And so, Paul says, I was going to say, but, but I think the logic here is, and so, don't use your freedom as an opportunity. The word there means like, a launching point. Don't use it as a launching point to do the very thing that grieves God's heart. After all, why would you? If you understand how it is that Christ set you free, why, why would you immediately run to the very things you've been set free from that will only enslave you again? Why would you do the very thing that breaks the heart of the spirit. In Christ, yes, we're justified by God's grace, we're secured, we're loved, we're adopted. Why? So we would steward our freedom to strive toward holiness and self-control. Again, we'll talk more about this next week when we talk about the fruit of the spirit. But I want you to notice what uh, Paul goes on to say in verse six. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, which is just a strange, strange thing to say. And yet what he's trying to say here is when it comes to your relationship with God, what it comes down to is not whether you obey or not obey the law. What it comes down to is faith in Christ, which works itself out in love. So not only has Christ set us free from self uh, for self-control, but also for sacrificial love. Verse 14, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus himself summed up all of the law in terms of loving God and loving neighbor. We don't know what was going on in the Galatian church, but something was going down. Apparently not everybody loved what the Judaizers were up to because Paul clearly sees in the Galatian church division. And so he goes on to say, just as a way of applying this, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Um, Yeah, I was, uh, maybe you've noticed the same thing. I'm, I'm always a little surprised, and this seems like a recent thing. You can tell me later if it's not. Some of you know more than I do about this. Um, But I've noticed like, the clickbait on social media and other places and, and YouTube has really taken kind of an aggressive turn. Have you noticed this? So like the titles are like, so-and-so destroys so-and-so. So maybe this says something about my algorithm. Maybe I need to change what I'm watching on YouTube, I guess. But you know, it's like, so-and-so destroys libs or so-and-so destroys conservative senator or uh, so-and-so demolishes so-and-so in this debate or shreds and I'm like, what about has reasonable discourse, you know, or um, persuades the crowd with the beauty and logic of his argument or her argument? No, it's all seek and destroy kind of language. Now, again, maybe this says a little more, I mean, I need to click on different things over time. I'm not really sure. Maybe I need to click more on cat videos or something. I don't really know. But, um, 
That has its own dark side, so maybe not that. Um, but it is a reminder that when it comes to um, when it comes to what it is Christ has set us free for, the way that Christians ought to speak to one another, and I would suggest even to others, is radically different than the way that the world speaks to other people. Radically different. And here I'm not reaching for categories like be nice to people, come on, don't, disagree, don't be disagreeable. There's plenty to disagree about and even within the church to disagree about. But if you listen carefully to what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, but what Paul is actually referring back to here, it's very clear that Paul has in mind that we use our freedom not only to defend ourselves you know, from temptation, but actually actively to reach out in sacrificial love. And the way that that's applied here is through words and the way that Christians work through conflict. Brothers and sisters, we should not look like the world when we disagree with each other. That's what Paul's saying. Brothers and sisters in Christ should not be destroying each other online or in person. Brothers and sisters in Christ should not be seeking to demolish and crush one another, persuade one another, sure. Disagree in a loving way, sometimes in a sharp way that we work, sure. But what we see in the world by way of arguing to destroy and demolish has no place in the church. That is a squandering of your freedom. That's what Paul is saying. That is using your freedom to harm. And that is not why Christ set us free. Um, yeah, I, I wasn't here. I mean, I was on the planet in 2020, but I wasn't here in 2020. So I can't speak for every single one of you. And I, I, wouldn't, I, I wouldn't do that even if I was here. So I will, here I'm talking about the church. I'm using capital C church, you know, big, big picture perspective. I would submit to you that the church had a golden opportunity to model this in a time in which the world and the church was deeply polarized over COVID and masks and vaccines and racial injustice and racial tension and, um, and oh, there was a government, or there was a, an election in there as well, now that I think about it. Um, like, the church had a golden opportunity to use the freedom we have in Christ. What does it say here? through love to serve one another and not to bite and devour one another. How did we do? I'd love for you in your, you know, your dinnertime conversation at you know, Sunday dinner or maybe in your community groups, I'd love for you to just assess one another, not maybe assess yourself in front of each other. Like, how do we do? How'd you do with that? Because here's the thing, um, in his providence, God's going to give us another shot at this. We have, you know, important elections this week, but there are others coming. There are other things going on in the world that have us deeply impassioned and in, in some cases divided. Let me just ask you, 
What did we learn then, both good and bad, that we need to apply now? And you say, Ryan, why, why would we do that? There's so much that he's, I, 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 I got it. Because Paul, in the midst of a theological controversy that, that risks splitting the church in half in the first century, in the first 30 years, that has ethnic and cultural roots to it as well, Jews and Gentiles, are they going to form their own churches and be divided for the rest of history? Or Paul bringing them back to the table to say, no, you are free in Christ, even to disagree, so that you might express love, love like the world has never seen. Of all the uh, horrific stories that have come out of um, the October 7th terrorist attacks in Israel, and there's been lots that's been horrific, there have been some beautiful moments too. Um, the story, you've probably heard this story, but I'll just, if you haven't, I'll just narrate it to you briefly. Uh, there's a, a young family, two daughters. They're in one of the villages that's attacked. They run to the safe room in their, in their house. And they immediately text his dad, who happened to be a retired major general in the IDF. Um, and so this grandfather gets this text and realizes his family's in danger. Like the terrorists are not just in the village, they're in the house. And they're huddled in there in this locked room with cement walls with their two daughters, no electricity, no food, you know, basically thinking this could be the end. Grandfather grabs his pistol. He lives in Tel Aviv, grabs his pistol, says to his wife, let's go. They get in the family car, and they start driving from Tel Aviv to southern Israel. It takes them hours, like five, six, seven hours. And when he gets there, he has to fight house to house with his pistol, fighting terrorists, all the way to get to the house of his family, not knowing if they're there alive or dead. So, so he gets to the house. He makes it to the house. And he starts hitting the window. He sort of knows which of the windows is the safe room. When he starts hitting the window, open, open. And the son who's inside says the first words out of his daughter's mouth. Grandfather is here. Why is it that we would use our freedom for self-control, for sacrificial love. Why? Because we really believe that we have been rescued in a way that's even more dramatic and more powerful than that story. We really believe that Jesus came looking for us. He came looking for you. He came looking for you. And at this table, he invites us not just to know that we're free in Christ, but actually to experience it, if I could even say to like to digest it by faith and to let it give us the sustenance and strength that we need to live for him. Amen. Father, we thank you for this table and we thank you that at this table you preach the gospel to us. Not with words, but with food and drink. And not just with food and drink, but food and drink that points us to the cross 
where you finished the work on our behalf. We pray now that as we come to this table, that you would strengthen and feed us in Jesus' name. Amen.